Welcome, Andrew. Thank you. Sorry, most of you have probably just finished hearing from me about something else, but it's good to be with you. Um, I what I'm trying to try and do in these 15 minutes is to give you a short theology of sex, okay? Um, and those words probably don't often go together in your thinking. Um, we'll have lots of opportunity for questions about much more practical issues and cultural issues and that sort of thing as we go in the panel. But I want to start by giving you a theology of sex. And I want, to st I want to start by telling you a story and then showing you an image. And the story may be uh, unknown to you. The image might be familiar. So the story is um, it's a lady called Naomi Wolf. I don't know how many of you have heard of her. She's a well-known writer. She's written a number of books. Uh, she's often featured in major broadcast media, major, you know, the sort of national newspapers around the world. Um, she's a outspoken feminist. She has, and then she wrote a really interesting article about pornography and about the, way, the sex as perceived by young people. And what she did was she did a series of discussions and interviews with young people about the way in which they treated sex and how they regarded it and even like what quite they thought it was and how they thought it functioned. You might think, well, this is really obvious. Everybody knows what sex is. But actually, I suggest to you that almost nobody knows what sex is. Now, what sex, I mean, even if I was to give you that word, sex, and then ask you to define it, I reckon the people on either side of you might come up with a different definition than you in this room. There would be hundreds of different ways of understanding what it was. And so she does some research and she starts asking around. She's trying to understand what trends are behind young people at, at large engaging in pornography and also young people at large as a result of pornography finding it harder to have fulfilling sex lives when they eventually do become romantically attached in, in marriage? Why is it that married couples are having less sex and then they're also having less children? And what, what's, what's going on in society that the society that is so saturated by sex is becoming less sexy? Like, why are people, at, in the end, like, why is that the trend? You can read a lot of research on it to see that as porn use goes up, actual sex goes down, and she's trying to talk to... Anyway, she's having these interviews, and she tells this one story about meeting a, very, a young guy who'd be the same age as a number of you. And he's talking about all the people he's slept with. And, but he just seems to have this slightly uh, empty view of what it is he's doing. It's in one way, you'd think, oh, he's had sex with a lot of people. He's a bit of a player. He's obviously, you know, he's got a great view of sex in many ways, really gets it. But as she's talking to him, she's saying, this guy just doesn't seem to have uh, a sense of the wonder of what sex is and can be. And why is it? Is it, is it just cheapened? And so she says to him, she asks this, this great question. She says, but don't you find that having all of this cheap, not very meaningful sex with all of these different people doesn't seem to be very satisfying? She said, don't you find that it takes away from the mystery of sex? And he says to her, mystery? What mystery? Sex has no mystery. And she writes it in this essay on porn, in the, I think in the New York Times, and she's making the point that isn't it astonishing that young people, and not just young people, but that young people can get to a point where sex has become so meaningless that they don't see it as representing anything other than a momentary activity which brings a rush of endorphins, an exchange of bodily fluids, and probably nothing else. And, and they don't really get that it means anything more than that. And, and it's like this lad is not going, yeah, do you know what, you're right. I used to feel that, but now I've lost it. He's saying, I genuinely don't know what you're talking about. I cannot conceive of how sex could mean more to anybody than it does to me, which is not, a, not really very much at all. That is such a tragic 
state of affairs. There might be some of you in that you would say, do you know what, that's my experience too. I just don't see the mystery. I don't see why sex means as much as you guys seem to think it does. So if you're a Christian, you have a very high theology of sex. It means an enormous amount. And I want to introduce you to what it means in the course of the next 10 minutes. I want to do three main things that it means. And I want to, in, in order to do that, to show you a symbol, which you'll be probably have seen before in some way. So this is the symbol of, we have the symbol of male and female stuck together. And so that sometimes becomes a symbol for male and female or just for sex in general. And I want to use the three parts of that image to show you what sex means for the Christian. Why would I, why if someone said to me, don't you think sex has a mystery? I'd say, sex is a profound mystery. Sex is glorious, it's transcendent, it's beautiful, but it's beautiful because it points to a reality beyond itself. Because it isn't just about an exchange of bodily fluids or a rush of endorphins or an orgasm or whatever else. It's about, it carries meaning and depth and weight. And that meaning can be celebrated whether you're single whether you're married, whether you're sexually active, whether you used to be sexually active and you're not now, whether you're gay, straight, you can celebrate that meaning by understanding what it is that God has created sex for. And he's done it for three things. The first, you'll notice at the center of that image is the circle, okay? Which represents, this represents creation in my picture. Sex is about creation. Sex means something to do with creation. It represents what God has done in making the world. If you read Genesis 1, what God does is he creates the earth the heavens and the earth, and then he brings a series of distinctions in the created order. He separates the light from the darkness on day one. He separates the sky from the sea. He separates the sea from the land. He separates the sun from the moon. He separates the, the, like the fish and the birds. He separates the animals. And then he, on the sixth day, he creates humans, male and female. And that distinction between men and women, between male and female, is part of God's created order as a witness to, the, if you like, the distinction between heaven and earth. And God, throughout the Bible, effectively uses the imagery of heaven and earth like a marriage that's waiting to happen. And you probably even noticed some of this in the way that Steph was talking last night about heaven and earth, the kingdom and heaven and earth. And the same actually with TJ as well. The image of the idea that one day heaven and earth are going to come together in marriage. But for now, they are distinct. They are separated. And so what sex is and means, one of the things it means is when two people come together and have sex in the context of a marriage, of a covenant marriage, which is the only Christian context for sex rightly to be used, many of us have fallen short of it. I have fallen short of it. Many of you have. But the appropriate, the right, the godly context for sex is between a man and a woman in a marriage. And one of the reasons why that's true is because when man and fe male and female come together and have sex in marriage, they are echoing or pointing to the marriage of heaven and earth that will one day mean that the two become one. And if you like, the, the fullness of the glory of heaven will become the fullness of the glory of the earth and the two will be united forever. And in that sense, the circle, the creation order, the world, sex speaks about creation. Sex points to the reality that God has distinguished things for now. Sun, moon, heaven, earth, all those things. Male, female, and that as male and female become one in covenant marriage, they point to the reality that at the end of the story, heaven and earth will become one in covenant marriage. The bride will become one with the groom. And all will be one. That is currently separated. So sex, in that sense, represents the circle. Sex represents creation. But you notice on that image, there's also an arrow pointing up. 
And for me, that represents worship. That's the pointing up, the idea of hands lifted up towards heaven, that there is sex not only represents creation, the circle, but it represents the arrow. It represents worship. Sex is, the, what you, you see, if you trace through the scriptures, you'll find that there is a very, very strong connection between the number of gods you worship and whether or not they are like you and the number of sexual partners you have and whether or not they are like you. And again, I'll say that, mindful of the fact that many of us have fallen short sexually. But that actually this is the biblical sound. This is what the Bible is telling you sex means, that it is about worship. In that, Israel is told, you shall have no other gods but me, commandment number one, and you shall have no other wives or husbands but him or her, commandment number seven. In the Ten Commandments, right at the beginning of Israel's story, they are told, you have one God, you have one marriage, one sexual partner who is your husband or wife. There is a connection between the number of gods you serve and the number of sexual partners you have. But then as you go through the Bible, you'll find the image of worshiping other gods is often, the image is often used of committing sexual immorality or prostitution, and sometimes the Bible uses very strong language for it. You read the prophets, they will often talk about Israel playing the harlot or being a whore. In that, Israel, in the way the prophets speak, that Israel is like a very promiscuous person who is sleeping around with all the gods of the nations. And God says, I have called you to be married to me. And instead of being married faithfully to your marriage partner, you are sleeping around. You are playing the whore is the way God speaks to Israel in the prophets. And it's very strong language. If you read Ezekiel or Hosea, there are large sections of those books that you would not want to read out loud in front of your mom and dad. They are uncomfortable reading. And they're supposed to be, they're supposed to shock Israel into recognizing you are treating your, you're treating your relationship with God like an unfaithful marriage partner would. And I am calling you to fidelity. I'm calling you to one, one commitment to one person forever. And therefore, as you, you are either going to find yourself committed to one God and be faithful to him and one marriage partner and be faithful to him or her, or you are going to find yourself somebody who plays the field with any sexual partners and any gods that you choose. And if you trace the theme through scripture, you'll find the prophets again and again speaking about the relationship between worship and sexuality. That by committing to one person in a covenant relationship, we are imaging the fact that we are also committed to God in a covenant relationship. Sex is about creation, but it's also about worship. And then the third part of the image, as you'll notice at the bottom, is a cross. And sex is about the gospel. It's about the cross of Jesus. It's about, in fact, just what we were looking at in the previous session with the death and resurrection of Jesus. Sex, sexuality, and marriage are intended to display the cross of Jesus Christ. So if you think about a wedding and the symbolism of a wedding, I don't know if you've seen this before. Right, I did a wedding last Saturday. I preached at a wedding. And so you have a couple. That, if I'm, so I'm here and standing at the front of the church, and the groom is standing around here at the front of the aisle, and everybody stands up, and then the bride comes in at the back of the room like this, she's over here, and she walks down the aisle, and everybody is staring at her, and I've got my little three-year-old son trying to look, get a look, and she walks down the aisle, she's wearing a white dress, it's pure and spotless, it's communicating purity, and as she gets to the front, they hold hands with the groom, they turn, and they make promises to one another, and they say things like, to have and to hold from this day forward. I am never going to forsake you. In fact, I'm going to forsake everybody else in order to love you. And I promise that I will remain faithful to these promises till the day I die before God. And then they give each other a ring 
And they exchange gifts to symbolize, this is a seal of the covenant. I've got one on my, my hand now. This is a seal of the commitment I've made to you. And this gift that you've given me is going to remain on my hand until the day I die to a point because it's trying to remind me and anybody else I am taken. I am committed to one other person. And then if they finish the wedding ceremony, they go, out, they go next door. They have a, there's a meal. Everybody's invited to a meal. As the day concludes, they then go and they consummate their physical relationship in having sex together. They then move into one another's homes. They set up home together. They share all their possessions and they spend the rest of their lives honoring that vow. And every single bit of that process that you've seen acted out when you've been to a wedding, every single part of it communicates something about the marriage of Jesus and the church. Right? Service begins. Jesus is standing at the front of the aisle. He has already done his bit. He has secured the right to marry his people, the church, by laying down his life for her. And the church walks in at the back of the hall. And as they walk in, everybody stands and looks at the church, a bride, radiant and beautifully dressed for her husband. And the church walks in white robes, purified by the blood of Jesus, walks down the aisle, comes to take his hand and commits to Jesus as Jesus commits to her. Jesus says to you, I am never going to leave you or abandon you. It's what he said to the disciples as he left them on, on Matthew 28. He said, I'm never, you're never going to be without me. I'm sending my spirit so you will always have me. The church turns to Jesus and says, I am always going to follow you and I'm going to forsake all other gods as long as we both shall live. There's an exchange of gifts. God hands us the gift of the Holy Spirit like a seal to carry with us everywhere we go because I've got the Holy Spirit sealing me. I know and other people know this is a child of God. Having made those commitments and those vows, we then go next door and we have a meal represented by the bread and the wine that we share as an, a meal, the Christian meal to celebrate what Christ has done for us. We celebrate, if you like, our union, even in a physical fashion, like sex is obviously a different kind of union, but the union you experience with Jesus Christ, you express physically through baptism in water. You become united with him in baptism. And as you express that physical union, you then effectively give him access to all of your worldly possessions. You move, Jesus moves into your house. He sets up home in your soul. He becomes your Lord and you serve him. You even, you even take on his last name, right? Even like my wife took on my name. She became Rachel, was Rachel James. She's now Rachel Wilson. She's taken on my name. And when we as the church get married to Jesus in this sense, we become believers. We effectively take on his last name. We become Christians. And then we move from, move from there. We spend the rest of our lives giving him access to all our worldly possessions. And we live out to the rest of our days looking as far as we are able to be faithful to the promises we've made to him, knowing that he will always be faithful to the promises he's made to us. Sex is about the gospel. It is intended to express covenant faithfulness. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, this, talking about marriage, this is a profound mystery and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. He says, husbands and wives are a mystery, an enacting, an unfolding of the beautiful cosmic drama that takes place as Jesus loves his people and his people love Jesus. So that young man comes to me and says, sex has, I don't know what you're talking about. Sex has no mystery. I say, oh, my friend, seriously, sex has a profound mystery. Sex is about creation, the union of heaven and earth. Sex is about worship. It's an act in a sense of covenant faithfulness in order to express the fact that as I only have one partner, I only have one God. And sex is about the Christian gospel, the death of Jesus, laying down his life for us and only committing himself to us as long as we both shall live. When we have sex, whether we mean to or not, 
we communicate something about all three of those realities. That's why Christians think sex matters a great deal. It's not because we're prudes. In fact, it's because we've probably got a much higher view of what sex is and means than most other people do. It's because we, we treasure it. We regard it as transcendent, as pointing to something beyond itself, as special, as mysterious, as rich and deep and beautiful. And because we do, we want to take all that the Bible has to say about it very seriously. And by the way, I commend you, because the only reason you're here is because you want to know what the Bible says about it too. So the fact that you're here means you're probably in for hearing about some of this stuff. Hi, we're the panel. Good to see you, panel. My name's Ben. Those of you that don't know, I think you will know me by now. Do you guys want to just quickly introduce yourselves if we start down that end um, just really briefly who are you where you're from um, and what's your main focus in in terms of life in terms of career that would be great to hear really great yeah um uh joe i hope you know me because i've been in here with you in the mornings uh, from king's church down in southeast london and i am um, hello king's church and i am one of the pastors on the team there Everyone, I'm Rebecca. I'm also with uh, in the, been with you in the mornings in the 15 to 18s with Joe. I go to Emmanuel Church in New Cross, and uh, what do I do for a job? I work in radio, doing like branded content and voiceovers and other stuff. So yeah, that's me. which radio station? Uh, I work for Kiss FM. Come on. I'm Emma. I go to Beacon Church in Brixton, where I'm really involved in um, pastoral care. And I also co-lead a charity called Orchards that works with women who've experienced sexual exploitation. So that might be through prostitution or trafficking for sexual purposes. And we do safe housing, counselling and wraparound support. Okay, and I'm Andrew and you've heard a lot from me today. But I'm the teaching pastor at King's Church London, which is also where Joe is. That sounds like a bigger whoop than Joe got, so I'm really pleased about that. That's good. It's not. A bigger yeah, I know we, um, we obviously know you guys, and Emma, it's great to have you here as well. It's helpful just to have a little bit of context to why we're here. Um, one of the, the reasons, I suppose, that we've just invited a number of people just to, to continue to speak into this subject uh, is because people have many different experiences. Um, so when we're talking about the subject of sex, and you've really helped us understand um, from a biblical perspective what that is... Um, uh, as we look at this nation, we, we're in quite a broken place. Um, and one of the, the huge um, ways that we can see that is through the, the Me Too campaign. And Emma, I want to just start with you. And um, particularly um, around Me Too, just helping people in this place understand a little bit about what it is, but also how we help um, begin to bring um, healing to, to brokenness, particularly with women and girls across this nation um, on this subject. It would be great just to hear a bit from you first of all. Yeah, sure. So just so we're all on the same page, um, Me Too was a big social media campaign a couple of years ago. There had been a number of um, allegations of sexual harassment, um, sexual abuse against a very well-known director. And the hashtag, if you have been sexually assaulted or experienced sexual harassment, reply Me Too, was posted. And it spread like wildfire worldwide. Um, it was quite controversial, um, but the, wi- the volume of um, women and girls in particular coming forward saying, yeah, me too, that happened to me, um, couldn't be ignored. And of course, there'd been many more who had those experiences, but didn't post it on social media. And I'd probably be in that category, actually. So like, um, for me, like many um, women, many girls from, say, the age of 13 up to my mid-20s, 
um, I was fairly constantly being beeped at or having maybe just being instructed to smile or having people make comments about different parts of my body, um, saying things they wanted to do. I was followed home a lot. I literally have no idea how many times I've been groped by random people on public transport, out and about, in the swimming pool. Um, I've had men expose themselves to me. Um, I also remember when I was at school, um, a guy told me my boyfriend had cheated on me, and then when I was upset, forced himself on me. And I didn't fight, um, I just went numb, because it was sort of easier to kind of zone out. Um, and I've had a couple of occasions where um, situations with people I thought were my friends have flipped, and people didn't say, I didn't stop when I said no, and I've had to fight. So the Me Too campaign, although it, you know, it, it wasn't perfect in the, in the way things came out, um, it showed something. It showed, okay, we do have a problem here. Yeah, for sure. But what it didn't show is, okay, how do we then navigate that with God to a place of healing and a place of restoration? And f for me, what that looked like when I was... 24, became Christian when I was 20. When I was 24, from a point of numbness, everything suddenly started coming up, and I felt really, really angry. And I remember saying, God, why is this coming up now? Yeah, why is this coming up now? And I heard him say, because I want to heal you. And so I met regularly for a period of time with some women from the church I was at back then, and they prayed with me. And I encountered God's Father heart for me. I heard him say that to him, I was worth what he went through to get me back. And I forgave the guys that, I, that had hurt me, not because it was okay, because it wasn't okay. We do need to be clear about that. Um, but because God asked us to forgive. And also, it was a gateway to him being able to really heal me and really kind of surrender that part of, of me to him that I'd had, so I had sort of locked away. And he healed my feelings of shame. I've noticed we've been singing about that a lot since I've been here. Um, and when, you know, we've experienced something like that, um, or, you know, if we're struggling with um, porn or, or whatever, the sort of feeling of shame of there is something fundamentally wrong with me. And if someone knew that about me, they wouldn't want to know. That can stick to you, and that can shape your identity. But God healed my feelings of shame, because that's what he died for. You know, he covered that, those feelings, those kind of deep identity, um, you know, root pain. He healed that as well. He healed my memory, so flashbacks stopped. And then one day, I heard him say, and by the way, that's my sons you're hating. Ouch. <laughs> And because my experience with guys had not been great, um, but I'd, I'd began to develop a lot of all men are, all boys are negative thought patterns that weren't in line with how God saw his sons who were made in his image. So I had to repent of that. I had to say sorry to God. And I began a process of just intentionally meditating on truth and renewing my mind and daily almost saying, men are God's sons and they're made in his image. Um, when I found, when, I, when my experience told me otherwise, I would say, no, men are God's sons and they're made in his image. And I choose to trust you, God, to bring guys into my life who treat me with dignity and respect. And then do you know what he did? Um, he did. And, and actually, he's used guys and particular things that guys have said. And, you know, my husband, who does treat me with dignity and respect, 
Um, so that now I'm able to work with women who um, have experienced a lot of gender-based violence without it touching onto my own pain or my own story. And I couldn't go to that all-men-are place, even if I tried. Yeah. That's amazing, isn't it? Thank you so much um, yeah, for being vulnerable um, and sharing with us and, and helping us understand a little bit more. I suppose one of the things um, that a mutual friend of ours would often say to me is, is just the distortion of relationship. And um, when we look at um, the Christian faith, when we, we look at sex and what we've just heard from Andrew, um, I suppose that the phrase that often is used is, is seeking to have appropriate relationship um, with the opposite sex and whatever that means in whatever context with brothers and sisters, uh, looking to mums and dads, that kind of thing. Something's obviously gone wrong and we know that way back at, at the beginning of, of time <laughs> in the garden. Um, more recently though, when I was growing up, um, I was sharing recently in um, one of the other seminars the other day, um, some of you won't believe this, but mobile phones didn't exist. Um, I used to use one of the phones like with the cord on that you had to go upstairs and sort of like drag the cord out and then mobile phones come out and I had this like little Nokia um, and it only had one game on it and it was Snake and it just sort of went round like that. Yeah, I know, I know. Snake has come back and uh, no, I'm bringing back the 90s, it's good. Um, but one of the things that personally I, I went through as a, as a young person is technology advance and then as then three brought out a phone that then had videos on it and everything like that. Social media then is introduced onto phones and now we are where we're at and I don't need to explain that to the room. But in, in terms of social media, the way that we communicate in this generation, the uh, exposure to pornography, the exposure um, to sexual content, live sexual content, everything that's going on. Can we just touch on, on that and, and just open this up a little bit to, to the whole panel um, just the, the impact uh, that social media particularly is, is having on us, um, and I include myself, if that's right, into this generation. Can we just talk a little bit about that? So, yeah, so I work in media, and a lot of the content that we put out, we have to try and find a balance of what's too overexposing and what's kind of deemed acceptable enough. And it's funny, a couple of weeks ago, there was a song that was being played on the radio, um, a song by Kanye West, and it was completely degrading to women. And I was sitting there in my corner, just looking around, like I can hear it from the speakers, and I was like, why are we playing this song? You know, we've, we've just seen the Me Too movement. We've seen, like, hundreds and thousands of people speaking out about how they've been um, uh, abused and how people have inappropriately... Um, um, like touched them or spoken to them and I just was sitting there and I was thinking why, why are we playing this this is just re-emphasizing this behavior that's that we're trying to say we need to, it needs to stop and so I was like okay well do I say something and I was like well yeah because this is this is my belief I believe that actually this objectifying of women especially it needs to stop and actually whilst in this, on this occasion, it wasn't visual, it was audible. And it, so it's a messaging that's being replayed over and over again. And I just went to our content director and I was like, um, his name, I just went to him and I just said, um, this song that you're playing, I, I just don't think, it's, I don't think it's appropriate because I just think it's absolutely magnifying this thing that, you, that when we've had like private conversations and the things that you've seen around, um, that we've like experienced in our um, building and stuff and we had a huge... Uh, uh, instance in my company where something like that happened as somebody was forcibly removed off the radio because it went it went really viral and I said 
just because it's not visual, that doesn't mean that this music is helpful. Mm. And obviously, I work in commercial radio, so a lot about commercial radio is about making money. So sometimes people aren't even thinking about the content. They're just thinking, we just need to get money in the bag. We just need to slip it in our pockets. And I just think um, with the social media and with uh, and just media in general, um, sometimes it makes it's very uncomfortable because if the grain, if the culture and society are telling us like, well, we just got to put it out there because sex sells. And then, you know, I'm saying, okay, yeah, sex sells because that's how it's been like, portrayed in society. But we know that secretly, not even secretly, very explicitly, sorry, it's so damaging. Um, and I've really had to learn, especially over this last year, um, about challenging people who are in like, top positions about the content that they put out. Um, and you know, at first, it's been very, very uncomfortable. And it's been like, oh, like, it's just Rebecca again saying, this is not good content. This is objectifying women. This is putting people in vulnerable positions. And the first two times, it was uncomfortable. And now I've got to a place of boldness. And especially when we just look, we look in the Bible and it talks about, um, and just as Emma was just saying, about like loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm like, I can't sit there and be like, oh, yeah, this is fine. This is just my job. And so um, whilst I may not necessarily always go into the deep conviction with my workplace about like, why I believe this, I think it's, I've really had to take the plunge and stand for things. Uh, sorry. I've really had to take the plunge and um, stand against some of the things that they've gone for, and I think that's not okay. And I think for you guys out here, like, obviously everyone's on social media, Snapchat, Instagram, Twitter, and you, it's constantly on your feed. And I think some things are even portrayed as not even being um, like explicit, but it's like soft porn. Like you just see a half-naked girl or a half-naked guy on there, and it's like, oh, yeah, it's right. This is just what that person does. But actually, no, because if the more you see these things and you're just like, oh, yeah, it's kind of acceptable, you kind of become numb to it. And it's like, actually, that person's body, uh, whether or not they're in Christ, um, houses, um, like, uh, you know, their character and their being. And some people put themselves, overexpose expose themselves for um, several reasons. And I just think for you guys out there, it's about, you know, we all have a sense of what's right and what's wrong and what makes us feel comfortable and what makes us not feel comfortable. And I think sometimes, you know, it's easier said than done, but sometimes it's, if it's your friend, it's sometimes like just like kind of challenging them a little bit. Be like, oh, like, so, you know, you put yourself out there like that. Like, why is that? Um, and, and, I, and I don't think you should ever come in a place of judgment because you don't know people's stories and you don't know what they've gone through. Um, but it's, I think sometimes it's just about birthing conversations with people to get to the point of why they've, why they've decided to put that out there, why um, we've chosen to put it on the radio, why we thought, because we just wanted to get like viral content, we've put that content out there. Well, why don't you just... I mean, just in terms of, yeah, we can give Rebecca a round of applause. <laughs> just, just try and take us a little bit deeper. So pastorally, I mean, there's going to be many people in the room that would just, when it comes to social media, um, just, just navigating. Because I, I don't think any of us would be sort of sat here just saying, just, just run away from the internet, like, you know, flee and, and, and get rid of it and bin it. But obviously, so it, it can be redeemed, we can use it for good. But it has its issues. How do we navigate that pastorally? What would you be teaching? What would you be saying to people that are here saying, actually, there's a lot that not, I'm not just simply coming across, but how do I navigate that, that journey with social media? Yeah, I mean, social media is obviously... Here we go. Hands up, if I can say, if you don't have any social media. It's, just, it's quite interesting just to see. I just The majority of us do, and... It's such a huge part of, of life now. Um, I personally don't have any social media. Um, 
And, and I kind of just want to say early doors and just be real with you to say that, that is an op- like, it is an option to go through life about social media. <laughs> I made a decision that when I was about, I'd come out of university and I was really struggling with a load of things, one of which was lust. And I just knew that social media was not helping me in any way. And I knew that I wanted to follow Jesus with my whole life. And so in the end, I thought, I'm just going to get rid of it. And I did. I deleted my Facebook, my Instagram, and it all just went. And I, I still don't have any social media now. Um, and I'm not trying to say that that's where you've got to go. That was what God was convicted me about. But it is an option to be able to go through life without having any social media. That, that, that is available because I knew that now if, if this is being a hindrance to me following Jesus, this is slowing me down. Jesus talks about, listen, if your right hand's called you to sin, just cut it off. It's, and so I thought, this is, cool. this is making me stumble. And I didn't think I had the, the strength or the willpower or the resistance to just say, I'm not going to do this. So I thought, you know what, it's got to go. And so, and so I did. And that, that's, I'm not saying you've got to do that. But it is possible to go through life without social media and without Instagram. You're not going to be completely weird. In fact, I met a young person here on the first day. Uh, that he might even be in him, a guy called Winston. He was chatting to me. And I said, ah, oh, let's connect later in the week. What's your number? And he said, I ain't got a phone. And I was like, what? And it's the first young person. He just said, oh, yeah, like, I, don't, I, don't, I don't really like to operate with a phone. It just, and I was thinking, wow, that like 16-year-old without a phone. Um, and so I just want to say that early on and I mean I don't think no that's helpful I mean I think one of the things that you're drawing out there is your own journey personal journey for some people here social media is not going to be a massive issue when it comes to that but none of us here can say that we never come across content that's probably unhelpful for our eyes Um, and so that's a reality and so just drawing a couple of bits out there for some of us and I've been in the same boat where I just completely can all social media uh, for a season what Rebecca's saying then there's a wisdom if you don't feel like you need to can everything but we still need to be wise with the journey that we're walking um, and just to be aware Um, I just want to come back a little bit I suppose with where we started in terms of you speaking Andrew, um, one of the things that the Bible is really clear about is um, not just simply that there is man and woman, um, but actually to celebrate man and woman. Um, I've touched on just that appropriate relationship, um, and in Timothy, 1 Timothy talks about that. Um, I wonder if you could just help us a little bit, uh, again in the room, uh, understand what your view would be in this day and age, where maybe the, the drift has gone and really what we should be aiming for when we're talking about the way that we relate to one another. So I'm not talking about sex. I'm just talking about how do we just relate to one another, men and women. Yeah, it's really good. So I think the, the culture of the Bible is the, the key text that Ben's just mentioned, 1 Timothy 5, 1 to 2, where Paul is teaching Timothy how to relate to other people, and he uses just family image. In each case, he says, you don't rebuke an older man. He's talking to a pastor. He says, don't rebuke an older man harshly, but speak to him as if you were speaking to your father. Treat older women as mothers. Treat younger women as sisters in all purity. And that's all he says about it. And then moves on and touches on something else. But there is such insight in the, the, the way that Paul is just assuming that the godly way to treat members of the family of God is to treat them as brothers and sisters. And in our culture the challenge would be treat them as brothers and sisters rather than as potential sexual objects, which is both, I mean, actually all three of these, these guys, but certainly both of the women who've shared so far have said this is a huge issue in our culture. In Paul's day, that probably wasn't the challenge. In, in, that's probably not the main point he was making because there are many other aspects to the picture that if I treat somebody like a sister, it, doesn't, it, it does, certainly does mean that I don't sexually objectify her. I have two sisters that is one thing that is just the most vile thought in the world is the idea of sexualizing your sisters. So you would never go there. But that's not all it means. It also reflects 
a, a very appropriate level of friendship and even intimacy you can have with someone without sexualizing them. And I think that one of the things that can happen is in reaction to sexual objectification of women or men in the other, to the opposite sex, is that you can almost, you can tack away from it and then regard, basically somebody is either going to be sexualized or I need to keep a very, very safe distance and not go anywhere near them. I think that's not what happens with my sisters either. I have a very close relationship with my sisters. I have enormous respect for their, for their dignity and their worth and their competence. I would, one, one of the things that um, I got asked at a conference once about, you know, how, somebody asked me something about what do you, what's it like being managed by a woman? I was like, well, if, if the woman knows more than I do about the thing I'm doing, then I do everything she says. That's what I do with my sister. She's an accident and emergency nurse in a London hospital. My kid has an accident. I ring my sister, and I do every single thing she says because she knows a lot more about it. You, you just you naturally treat your sisters with a level of respect and dignity. That doesn't mean that you sexually objectify them, and it also doesn't mean that you run away from them. You, you treat them with the honor that's appropriate. Now, obviously, not every one of us has a sister or a brother of the opposite sex, so... Understand, but you can you can map pretty quickly, can't you, on how you then treat relatives? And I just think that framework. If you ran almost every question like this, you ran the Me Too question, you ran the even what should be played on the radio question, you ran the the social media question through the filter of how would I feel if that was my sister being touched by someone on a bus, or my sister being sung about or objectified in a video or or a music, whatever? How would I? You just, it answers a lot of these questions for you. So I just think that framework is so very powerful at avoiding unnecessary distance, but also avoiding any sense of sexual objectification. You treat one another like brothers and sisters. That's, that's what God says. It's, very, it's actually quite straightforward, I think. Yeah. I, I just wonder, um, this is a little bit off the cuff, so a little surprise. Um, one of the things that we're obviously majoring on uh, in terms of women being objectified and the, the journey for you guys and just it's just a live issue right now. Um, how do we respond? And obviously what we're saying is as, as guys, I suppose we're, we're listening, we're saying, yes, that, that's the deal. We, we, we want to treat you as sisters. And it might even be the, the heart desire. Um, but in reality and in terms of application and, and the way we already might be somewhat down the road, how do we just particularly speaking to young men in the room right now and um, Emma I wonder whether even you, you'd just like to, to, to help us how do we respond and start to tackle this issue because for some it might just be oh, oh okay that, that's been me um, how do I take a step back why, why have I got to that place how do I sort of start to move away from that place we've talked about healing experiencing it that way how do we start to speak into the brokenness and healing that needs to come the other way as well and just that'd be helpful Thank you, yeah, sure. I, um, I suppose I would say to guys um, here, I'm conscious that, you know, even as I was sharing before, there may be guys here who, if we're really honest, um, have maybe been the cause of a Me, uh, of a me Too. Um, and I would just say from a starting point, if there is grace. There is grace and coming to, coming to, if this is coming up for you, then great, give it to Jesus because, and, and, you know, and, and receive his forgiveness and know that that doesn't have to carry on um, being your story. That's the first thing. The second thing would be that actually guys have a massive role to play um, in, in women and girls healing 
from some of these things. So I know that it can be hard to engage and we can be scared of engaging because it feels uncomfortable. Maybe we're worried about saying the wrong thing or whatever it is. But personally, in my own life, I remember a Christian guy saying to me, um, he's only 20, so not massively older than um, a lot of you in this room. He said, um, when are you going to stop seeing yourself as a piece of meat and start seeing yourself as someone worth dying for? And that stuck with me. And there's been also times where I've had sort of guys who said, I'm sorry that happened. That was not okay. You know, it's incredibly healing. And even the process of, you know, I, I loved Andrew's point of um, what does family look like? Because one form of, of dysfunction obviously is abuse. But another dysfunction is there's no communication between um, um, brothers and sisters. And that reinforces the lie that the only way that... Um, guys can engage with girls as sexually or not at all and then that um, also reinforces the value of um, of your value your worth is in your your sexuality in your sexiness you are worth nothing more so um, I would say to guys in the room not only is there healing in your own walk with God but actually you have real potential to be a catalyst for healing mm -hmm. in the, the, for the women and girls in your world. Okay. That's wonderful. Thank you. I think um, one of the things that's just coming out here, guys, obviously when we do sessions like this, it's a huge subject. Uh, it's one that we want to speak truth into from the Bible. Uh, we want to just be really aware that there's many, many different stories that will be represented in this room, and that's why we've got the panel that we've got. So from, even from a personal point of view, um, just knowing God's healing, um, freedom from addiction. We've heard that a few times um, through the week in terms of uh, men and women struggling with pornography, struggling with walking down a certain road, uh, and, and I suppose ways of thinking, um, but actions that come from that. There is, there is genuine healing um, from all of those things, and we want to help nurture that. So in just a moment, um, there's going to be opportunity um, on that kind of theme. I suppose where Andrew started with more the theology of sex itself and the mystery and understanding that a bit more in this culture because it's a very, very different narrative that you got up and shared in comparison to what we're hearing on a daily basis uh, when it comes to casual sex and everything that we see uh, in the media as well. So in just a moment, there's going to be opportunity to come and ask questions. There's a microphone to the right and to the left. Um, you might find them a little bit difficult to see, but I promise you they are there. Um, so if, if you already have questions, do just start coming to those microphones. Um, but I'm just going to finish this bit and I'm um, going to ask you all to be quite brief here, okay? So I need like one or two sentences tops. Um, but in, in this culture that we're in is, is sexualized. I mean, it's not even on a journey. I mean, we live in a sexualized culture. We, we are where we are. Um, for young people that are wanting to follow Jesus in the culture that we are in, what would be your best advice? Um, and I know you could all talk about that probably for hours, but just two sentences. Joe, I'm going to start with you and then we'll come back and finish with Andrew, <laughs> if that's all right. Just a couple of sentences, just a couple of bits of advice. You don't need to cover all the ground, just a couple of bits of advice. No, of course. Um, two sentences. I think you seek first the kingdom of God. I think ruthlessly pursue getting to know Jesus more and more and more and you'll see that he is more glorious than anything else the world can offer. He said that there's a man who finds a bit of treasure in a field. That's what Jesus said. And the man who found the treasure sold everything that he had just to buy that one piece of treasure. And he says in the same way that when you come to know who Jesus is, he is worth more than anything else the world could possibly offer you. 
including sex, but anything, everything else. So the more you just ruthlessly get to know who Jesus is, the more you'll see how glorious he is and better he is than anything else the world can offer. That's great, thanks. Wasn't um, two sentences, but well done. <laughs> um, I've got two quick things to say. We love to use this word a lot, and I realise that you don't actually have to do this, but obviously just accountability. And I think sometimes people feel like they have to be accountable to older people because the older person has like wisdom and they've got more years in their life. And whilst that's true, I think you can also just be really accountable to your friends because I think sometimes before you get to a point where you, uh, if you're like really deep... Um, in something and you feel like it's got it's got a hold over you sometimes just your mate your sister your brother next to you might be the person that you just need to just share with they might not have the answers to help you get out there but sometimes it's just the the initial step of just saying this can you help me through this can you pray with this can you just can we pray through this um so I would say like accountability with your friends um and the other day somebody said to me around the campsite that in their like friendship group they all have the same passcode which I thought was quite unique. Like, I was like, okay. Um, they all have the same passcode. So, and so that everyone has access to everyone's like, personal accounts on social media and on their phone. Just thought that was quite helpful, like something quite practical. Um, just, you know, find people that you trust, that you know that when they're going to go through stuff on your social media or your phone, there's not going to be any judgment there. There's just going to be a chance for you to be able to chat through, talk through, pray through, and obviously, as we said, like bring it back to Jesus. So, yeah. That's great. Thanks, Rebecca. For me, I would say um, surrender to God. So he asks us to give up all of ourselves to him, not just us, uh, our, um, our sexuality, but including that and being filled with the Holy Spirit yes. daily. Because when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, rather than trying to do things in our own strength, which doesn't work, I don't know if you've tried it, I have, it doesn't work, um, where he puts new desires on our heart, new identities. He puts his finger on memories to be healed. He puts his finger on um, relationships that maybe need to have more boundary. Um, he um, shows us maybe where we have labeled label people or, where, or maybe we've internalized labels that other people have, have given us. Um, he leads our healing and he enables us to walk in freedom and walk in freedom in our relationships. That's great. See if you can do two sentences, Andrew. The devil loves the dark, and God is light. And you mustn't underestimate the shame that comes from keeping your struggles secret. And you also mustn't underestimate the freedom and grace that comes when you're open about what you're wrestling with. Awesome. <clears throat> so... Um, We've got time just for a few questions. Um, I'm looking at the microphones, I can see them, and there's no one stood by. Oh, here we go. So we've got a question. We don't need to clap every time, that's all right. Um, yeah. My question is, a lot of sexual assaults happen in like a church area, and it's normally by the pastor onto like a young person, but it goes unnoticed and normally it gets ignored because... Um, everybody respects that pastor and obviously if they tell them that they didn't do it then they, everyone will believe them because they're a respectable person so I just want to know what's your opinions on it and how can we like reduce this issue and how can we make more oh, how can we add more awareness to issues like this okay did you guys hear the question yeah so particularly you going for it 
I suppose, first of all, I would say that we need to be really, really clear, and we know this, we need to be very clear, it is not okay. So irrespective of what position somebody has, if that is going on and it's known to be going on, um, that then it does need to, to come into the light now. Um, we, we need to be careful sometimes about how we do that because there have been situations of you know, false allegations, etc. But um, churches should have safeguarding processes in place and people we can talk to. Um, if they don't, then we can talk to... Um, if something very serious like that is going on, we can talk to the police or social services. Um, but we do need to report it. It does need to be um, responded to, um, whoever whoever it is. So I think I would find out, first of all, what are the child protection safeguarding processes in a church. Um, and if there don't seem to be any, then, then go outside. Because one, one benefit of, of Me Too at the moment is there's a lot more um, awareness um, of this. And so there's, there's more effective responses to this. So we don't have to keep things in the dark. Um, we don't have to be afraid to have difficult conversations um, so I would say if we if we know that's going on then we then we need to find a place to report it do you want to add anything that's great thank you for that question I just think with that if you want to keep asking more then obviously a few of us will be available afterwards as well let's go to this side let's take a question as Christians, how can we tackle the objectification of men so it has the same effect that tackling the objectification of women has in society? <laughs> I, can, I can go. I'm, I'm not 100% sure I heard. I know it sounds silly. The question hasn't quite come through these monitors. So did you say how do we ensure we avoid the objectification of men? How can we tackle the objectification of men in the same way that we tackle the objectification of women? Because obviously yeah. I completely agree with everything you were saying about dealing with women getting sexually assaulted and abused and stuff. But I feel there's a lack of communication in men getting raped and sexually yeah. assaulted. Yeah. And it's kind of harder for men to yeah. step forward and say, I've okay. been raped, I've been sexually yeah, 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 assaulted. Yeah. How can we help tackle that? Yeah. Hey, yeah, that's that, really helpful. That's awesome. Thank I you. Just, I, hadn't, I hadn't quite, I thought that was what you said, but I hadn't heard it and I didn't want to answer the wrong question. Um, in many ways, of course, we're tackling the exact same issue in reverse. What we ha I think the challenge that we have to be aware of is that there can, be, as I think as you're alluding to there, that it can be harder for men to admit that they are experiencing sexual abuse in many ways than it can be than it can be for women I and mean, it sounds like an awful thing to say because it's it can be incredibly hard for anybody but there are some stigmas attached to young particularly young men coming forward in that sort of context that seem to be greater in proportion because of the extra shame that can be for being i'm supposed to be stronger and that's that's a massive generalization and of course it is excruciatingly hard for almost anybody to come forward but I think we just have to be able to make space. And as, and as we're talking, re recognize that although in culture at large, the sexualization of women is probably a much more predominant presenting issue. I think if you just watch media, billboards, whatever, listen to, the, to radio, you'd notice that that phenomenon. I think at the same time that for a lot of people who have experienced any kind of sexual abuse, we must be very careful that we don't act as if this is only a problem for young women. And in many ways, you even answering that, asking that question and raising that is a huge part of that solution. And it's just important. I love the fact that even in our church, to relate back to the previous question, that the, 
sort of putting up safeguarding procedures and making sure you speak to young people about what to do if something is happening to them happens as much among the young men as it does among the young women. It comes, you go into the men's toilets, it's there as much as it is in the women's. I think it's regarding this as a unisex issue and, and that, that, of course, you throw in issues of sexuality and that becomes another issue all over again. And I think just to not be naive as if this is something that only happens to the most obviously vulnerable people that actually to recognize this can sometimes be something that's harder to come forward with if you are perceived to be a strong person. So I think your question is really helping us, even in raising that, I think. Yeah, I mean, I just would, um, just to add, uh, more just from a personal point of view, if there's those of you that are young men in the room, um, that this is a great opportunity um, to just bring stuff like this to the light. Um, For me, I didn't, I didn't just start life in a place where I didn't understand relationship with women. I had a really healthy relationship with my mum and my sisters growing up. Um, it was actually in a, in a situation where walking with the Lord um, and a drug dealer um, used to expose a number of us, an older guy exposed us to pornography. Abuse going on in that situation. Um, and that's not something with God um, to be honest with you it was years and years later that I looked back and I realized there were situations that happened when I was young that twisted my understanding of how to relate to women as I got older and even in my marriage and stuff like that so if, if there are things going on for you guys in terms of the men in the room as well as the women um, as you say it's we want to help we want to be a support and um, this is a, an opportunity um, just to start to bring some stuff to the light and I only share that story with you so that it, it gives you permission to speak you, you are not the only person if you are out there and you are suffering in this kind of way you are not the only one that has experienced it and there are great men and women here that would love to help you thank you so much for that question let's come to, to the left hand side Hey, um, so I have about three younger siblings. I'm the oldest one, and I have, you know, a younger sister who's growing up, and we, she feels very comfortable with me, like, asking questions about these sort of things, but I'm more worried about, like, communicating with my much younger brothers. Like, the middle one is just six, and yet I can already see, based on the influence of his parents, my mother and his father, he's beginning to kind of see women as these significantly weaker, insignificant uh, species. And his father kind of tends to sexualize women. So it's quite worrying to see him grow with that mentality. How would I kind of, as he gets older, communicate a different view on women? I think... um I'm just taking the nod. I think um, my little boy's six, um, so just I feel an instant connection with it and just the world that he's growing up in um, is challenging. Um, I remember sitting there a little while ago, we were just watching uh, some cartoons and an advert came on and I was just like, you know, like some woman in a bikini and it was for yoghurt or something like that. And my two little boys are looking at the screen like, is that what happens when I have yoghurt? Like, you know, it's like... (laughs) who is this person and wow it's like you know you just saw it go on and um, uh, I talked a little while ago about just the, the Bible helps us and I won't go too in depth but just sort of opening um, opening the chest because there's a gift that, that sex is a gift and it's not a bad thing 
I think one of the things I would say to you as an older sister is that don't carry all the weight on your own shoulders. Um, you need to be pointing him um, first and foremost to Jesus and relationship with Jesus. Um, you need to honour um, your, did you say it's your mum and... Yeah, my Sorry, mum and see his... You, but... Yeah, it's okay. Yeah. Uh, need... Our mother and his father. Yeah, so uh, you're not called to play mum. Um, and you just need to sort of hear that in the right way. You're there to be an older sister. Just point to Jesus, but also point to other men that can be a great example. Um, point to the church. Um, point to people that you trust that are being a good example. So you, you can't block his eyes to the world around. Um, you can't remove him from his family situation, that yeah. some of the issues that might not be helpful. But you can point to Jesus. You can point to other people as well. So I'd encourage you just to play the right role in his life. Yeah, definitely. Thank you very much. Well, guys, uh, it, it really feels like a bit of a crime to bring this amazing seminar to an end, but we have reached the end of our allocated time. Can I just say, if you have a question, please do stick around, because some of the panel are going to come right now. They're going to stand over there.